Tonight's topic, as you can see, is intimacy. Not just sexuality, but intimacy. And I think this is a key point to make because a couple may have a great sexual relationship without true intimacy, and eventually that will catch up with you. Now, obviously, tonight is a sensitive topic, um, and we need to get over ourselves as the church, the people of God, and uh, we will look at that a little bit, but I also know that we are walking a line between being very straightforward and not shying away from sensitive topics, but also not being overly explicit at the same time. I know personally as a, as a father leading a home, my wife and I don't shy away from the topic of sexuality in our home. We don't. That's not a taboo subject. It's actually something that is freely discussed, and uh, we have a six-year-old in the house, and that's okay. Um, I don't ever expect to ever have the talk with any of my kids, because by the time they're that old, uh, there's going to be no need for that. And hopefully, above everything else, my wife and I are demonstrating what a healthy relationship between husband and wife will look like, so that when my kids see the counterfeit, they won't want the counterfeit, because they've seen what true emotional intimacy looks like between two people that love God and want to honor Jesus Christ. So, we are uh, heading into this subject tonight, and I just want to start by noticing, noting with everyone, just the basic overall narrative of this book right here. This is God's book to us, and there's a basic narrative to it, and if someone off the street or someone you work with came to you and said, hey, you read the Bible, right? You said, yep, I read the Bible. And they were to say to you, well, what is the Bible about? Just, you know, 60 seconds. That's all I need. What is, what is this book about? What would you say? Well, the basic narrative, most of you know this. This is, this is probably not, it's not new information, that's for sure. Maybe it's new to some of you. But the basic biblical drama is it starts with paradise lost, right? So God makes paradise. He puts man and woman into the paradise called the Garden of Eden. And, of course, they lose it because they didn't follow and trust God's simple, simple command not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, right? And they lost it, and that's where we're living today. But the gospel enters, God doesn't just leave us here and say, well, you blew it. I think I'm going to start over again. He doesn't do that. But God sends his son to redeem the paradise. And this is where we find ourselves right now. We find ourselves in this spot between paradise lost and the ultimate, which is paradise restored. Ultimately, we're right in the middle. God is redeeming the world to himself. It's this already but not yet type narrative, and that's where we find ourselves in this tension of paradise redeemed. Well, we could change, and of course, as the Bible ends, we see everything. God sets the world right. He makes a new earth, a new universe, and he puts his people onto that new earth, and they live with 
untarnished, undivided relationship with God forever and ever in eternity. Paradise restored. Well, we could change the word paradise to this. Intimacy lost, intimacy redeemed, and intimacy restored. And ultimately, that is also the narrative of the Bible. We can see all of these together. Now, we're going back to Genesis again just for a few minutes. Spending a lot of time in Genesis, you might have noticed. It's because we continually are going back to the scene of the accident, right? What went wrong? What happened to us? What happened to our marriage? What happened to our relationship? What happened to my kids? And so on. We keep going back to the scene of the accident. And Genesis 2.25, the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Intimacy was perfect, right? Naked, not ashamed. They didn't even... They weren't even aware they were naked. Didn't even concern them that they might be in a vulnerable spot. Not at all. But in Genesis 3.12, after they fell, they disobeyed, they rebelled against God, the man said to God, who said, what'd you do? And the man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me of the fruit and I ate. So he completely throws his wife under the bus. And we would say at that point, intimacy is lost. And of course, to the woman, God says, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. So that's one consequence of being attached to the man. And in pain, you shall bring forth children. Notice this, your desire, Genesis 3.16, your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. In other words, he will dominate you. You see this battle of the genders going on, intimacy lost. Right? She's going to want to go her way, and he's going to try and control her. You ever seen this play out? It's just, again, just the effects of the fact that we fell, right? Intimacy lost. Intimacy redeemed? Well, we're going to see that tonight because we will be in Song of Solomon. We're going to eventually end up in Song of Solomon or Song of Songs, depending on what you call it, where Song of Solomon 2.15 the one lover is speaking to the other, saying, Catch the foxes for us, the little foxes that spoil the vineyards, for our vineyards are in blossom. What are they talking about? They're using poetic language to talk about those little foxes, those little issues that come in and eat away at the intimacy. And these two, these two individuals in this relationship are saying, Catch those foxes, get rid of them. This is intimacy redeemed. These are two people that love God. There's a vertical relationship here. And they want pure intimacy in their lives, even in a broken world. And that's Song of Solomon. That's uh, kind of the theme of Song of Solomon. And then intimacy restored. What are we looking forward to? Jesus not only came and died to redeem us, and we're living in that tension of already, but not yet. We're not quite there, but in a Christian marriage, in a Christian relationship, we should be fighting towards pure relationship, pure intimacy. We're not quite there. There's some things in between. We're going to get to that. But intimacy restored. What is this? I thought there'd be no marriage in heaven. Well, Jesus does talk about that in Luke chapter 20. The Sadducees, people who that denied the resurrection of the dead, they came and they were basically challenging Jesus and they brought this hypothetical to him that would never happen. But they brought it to him anyways because, well, they quite frankly, didn't care about the answer. They just wanted to trap him. 
And Jesus said to them, The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage. But those who are considered worthy to attain to that age, to the resurrection from the dead, a direct hit against the Sadducees who asked the question, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, for they cannot die anymore, because they are equal to the angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. You say, okay, so marriage is going to end. Does that mean intimacy is going to end? Is that what, is that what we're talking about? No. Absolutely not, because that would be a denial of what God is working toward. He's working to reestablish what was broken in the first place. No, that's not the case at all. In fact, one scholar, Tremper Longman, wrote this. He said, we must remain open as to the nature of relationships in heaven and not impose a cold, sterile, non-sensual understanding on the biblical text. Listen to this. These words are very key. What we do know is that both vertical relationships, divine-human, and horizontal relationships, human-to-human, will be healed and completely restored in heaven. I don't know what that's going to look like. None of us do. Scriptures don't really give us a window into what that's going to look like other than eye has not seen, ear has not heard, the things which God has prepared for those that love Him. But this redemption phase that we're still fighting through in this culture is heading toward a day when God is going to restore all relationships, and He's going to restore intimacy to its fullness. And so Tremper Longman, again, he says, the redemption of our intimate human relationships, indeed, like the redemption of our relationships with God, is an already, but not yet, phenomenon. And we talk about the kingdom of God like this, right? We're in this already, but not yet tension, right? Where we're living in anticipation of the coming kingdom, but it's not here yet. It's not here in its fullness. Jesus isn't here It's the same thing with intimate relationships. It's the same thing with our connections. It's the same idea. So, we have the biblical drama, and I want to point that out. That's going to be very important to understanding where we're at. We're right in the middle right now. Intimacy redeemed. If you're a child of God, then you are in that tension right now. In yourself, with your flesh, you've been redeemed, but God is in the process of restoring you restoring you, sanctifying you, we say, setting you apart, right? That's where we're at. Well, and we're caught. We're caught between two extremes, and I want to point these out as well before anything else. The two extremes. The first one, and by the way, these are two, I'm not going to go into them, but if you're interested and you weren't at my last series of classes in the fall on cultural issues, one of the classes was on the sexual revolution, and uh, if you're interested, you can go back and look that up. It's on the website, it's on Spotify, it's on uh, YouTube, it's, it's out there. Uh, very accessible. But we're caught between these two extremes right now. One is the sexual revolution in which sex is an idol, right? Our culture has completely idolized sexuality. That's what most of the world's songs are about right now. Some more explicit than others, That's what most of the world's drama is about right now. Sex is a god. We worship it. We think about it. We talk about it. 
it's, it's everything to us, and the media makes us think that it's everything to us. Again, if you want to go further with how that developed, look up the, the previous class. But the other one, the church's response, sex is taboo. We're not supposed to talk about it. We're supposed to be hush-hush, quiet, it's uncomfortable. And when someone gets up and starts to speak about it, well, the elders should probably have a chat with that guy and tell him to, to cool it a little bit, right? Don't be discussing these things in the church. After all, the church is supposed to be a holy place. And what is implied in that is that sex is not a holy, holy topic. It's not a holy reality. In other words, well, wait a sec, isn't anything that God made supposed to be, isn't it intended to be, something that's sanctified, glorious, holy, reflecting Him. And so when we say these things, that sex is taboo, and we stay silent, or we get very uncomfortable, and we dread the day that we have to have the talk with our kids, and we're not quite sure how we're going to do all of that, or we just have a lack of clarity, no real explanation as to why, just don't have sex outside of marriage. Well, why? Because God says so. What further explanation do you need? And so we leave it, we don't discuss it further than that, we don't give any necessary explanations, just a command without any kind of clarification at all. And of course, the purity culture, I'm not going to go into that, but in the 90s we attempted to resolve this with the purity culture, and that didn't work out either. Again, you can look that up in the last class. The outcome of the church's silence is pretty clear that, well, first of all, sex and God became separated. It's like, well, we have God over here, we have sex over there. They're not in the same, so don't be thinking about God and sex at the same time, right? Like, that's, that's the way it kind of gets into our mind, especially if we grew up in church where sex was taboo. Or shame is introduced by Christianity about the subject. You should feel shame if you have any sexual thoughts or any sexual inclinations or sexual desires, rather than if obviously illicit or sex outside of the boundaries that God has placed on it, it should bring conviction that should lead to repentance and freedom, freedom, right? And within the boundaries of marriage, there should be freedom to en enjoy intimacy with your spouse. And of course then, ultimately, what do people in church do? What do young people especially in church do? Well, where am I going to find freedom in this topic? Well, the world seems to talk about it. The church won't, so I guess I'm going to the world to get my answers about sexuality. And since I can't ignore the fact that I'm a sexual being, I'm going that way. And the world has been very effective at discipling our young people in this, in this area. And that's not the way it should be. Here's where we're going tonight, plan of approach. We're going to first of all look at how intimacy is lost in the culture. That's number one. Then we're going to look at intimacy that's lost in our circumstances. That's number two. And then finally we're going to look at intimacy redeemed through Jesus Christ. All right, and the gospel has everything to do with that. Before we get into this, we're just going to take just a brief moment and ask the Lord to help us tonight. Let's pray together. So, Father, we're thankful that you are the author of relationships. You are the author of marriage. You are the one who set man and woman in the garden where they were naked and unashamed. It is our sin that has driven a wedge between us. It's our sin that has tainted sexuality and tainted our relationships and made them unholy. And Father, we pray that tonight the gospel will shine brightly 
in what is covered in this topic, Lord. We ask that your word would be our authority, that we would stick close to it, and that we would be reminded tonight that you are the author of all good things. So Lord, please help us in our time together tonight, that you would be glorified, that we would benefit as a result. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, let's first of all look at the culture, how intimacy has been lost in the culture uh, through sex being an idol, something that we worship. Culture has been, as I've said, effective at teaching godless sexuality to a world of disciples. These disciples include us, yes, us, without our knowledge that we've been influenced. We've been taught certain things for so long that we begin to assume them. And we begin to even live them out, even if with our words we would say they're wrong, or with our words we would say we believe something and not that. Yet with our lives, we live these out, these unrealistic expectations. All right, so here's the first one. That sex and intimacy are separate. The the culture tries to separate these two things out. And basically, what is behind this is what we know today as the hookup culture. That sex is just a physical act with no consequences emotionally, spiritually, psychologically. Hollywood is filled with movies about friends with benefits. It's everywhere. But the truth is you cannot separate the two. You can't join two bodies together without entangling the hearts. The consequences are well documented, whether it be STIs, addictions due to dopamine rush, pregnancy, depression and suicide, weakness, uh, weakened ability to connect emotionally. All of these are the result of a culture that has been taught that you can have sex without intimacy just casually and there will be no consequences to it at all. This doesn't include, uh, the list I gave doesn't include the spiritual consequences that sin separates us from God. It drives a wedge, not just between us and other human beings, but it drives a wedge between us and God. There's the vertical focus again. Secondly, sex happens instinctively. Another lie that the culture has taught us. Through movies again, TV shows, they, they set the stage very well, set the mood, the lighting, the music, everything else, and two people staring into each other's eyes, and you know what's coming, the tension's there, it's building, and so on, and it just happens instinctively. You don't have to do anything to work at it, not at all. And to think of sex as being challenging or requiring any kind of self-sacrifice or intimacy, it requiring any kind of self-sacrifice is unattractive at best and degrading at worst. But again, Hollywood has proven, I mean, just Johnny Depp, Amber Heard, you guys following the news at all? I mean, that's just the most recent example. But Hollywood has proven by the reality of broken relationship after broken relationship that the notion that sex is just instinctive and just happens flawlessly is a false hope. No one can live up to it. No one. Instead, Scripture is pretty clear that intimacy is something that is going to require healthy communication, conflict resolution, we looked at those a few weeks ago, intentional planning, overcoming challenges, mutual sacrifice, and other-centered attentiveness. It's going to take work. It's very rewarding work, but it's going to take work. 
But the culture says, no, no. If it takes work, it's not worth the work. Move on to someone else. Third, sex fills an appetite. The Corinthian culture, back in the early church, this was the idea that they had, that sex was viewed as something that was just as physical and just as meaningless as eating a meal. And Paul addressed that in 1 Corinthians 6, uh, where he brings up a statement that was even, it had penetrated the church, and the church was believing it, and again, the culture had discipled the church, and they were saying things like, well, food is meant for the stomach, and the stomach for food. It's no big deal. Both are going to die, and God will destroy both one and the other. It doesn't matter what I ate for dinner. If I die, I'm going to be buried. The worms are going to eat everything, and it's not going to matter at all. And they were using that to kind of justify who they were sleeping with and what kind of um, sexual activities they were involved in. To practice self-denial in this area, and this is true in our culture as well, to practice self-denial in this area of cutting off an appetite is as evil as physical starvation. How dare you tell young people that they can't have sex? How dare you say that? The Apostle Paul is quick to correct this false assumption that sex is more than just something that fills an appetite. It is spiritually significant. Spiritually significant. He said, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. I think actually the way he wrote the word never, he was kind of screaming the word never. Like, never! Would never happen. God forbid. All right, sex follows feelings. Here's another cultural lie. Yes, the culture teaches its disciples to regard feelings above everything else. This is the justification for same-sex attraction, gender reassignment, adultery, the love is love movement. The message is you can love who you want. It just, fo just follow your feelings. And when you stop feeling in love, the culture advises you it's time to move on and find sexual fulfillment and freedom elsewhere because it is all about your freedom. It doesn't matter who your freedom tramples on. It is all about your freedom, according to the culture. But authentic intimacy will require commitment, endurance, patience, obedience to God's commands, and yes, self-control, even in marriage. Here's the fifth one. Sex is identity. It's an expression of your identity. The culture is obsessed with self, right? What is the most popular photograph right now in our culture? The selfie, right? That's what we, we, we worship self, we try to find self, we try to be true to self, we try to trust self. Please, if you're a Christian, please don't talk about I need to learn how to trust myself. You don't need to learn how to trust yourself. The Bible says don't lean on your own understanding for anything. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. That's where we need to be. But to express yourself sexually is considered, or to not, pardon me, to not express yourself sexually is considered hypocritical. You're a hypocrite. In other words, if you have same-sex attraction uh, feelings, and that's your identity, to practice any kind of self-control because you're following Jesus Christ to, to deny the flesh, to deny your desires that are outside of what God's will for you is, well, you're a hypocrite. You're inauthentic. You're not being yourself. 
Self-denial, in this case, culturally, is, and self-control, not just self-denial, but self-control, is looked at as deeply dishonest and immoral. And it's not the, what the Apostle Paul said. The Apostle Paul said, and such were some of you. That's who you were. Sexually immoral, idolaters, adulterers, men who practice homosexuality, thieves, greedy, drunkards, revilers, swindlers. He said, all these are not going to inherit the kingdom of God, and such were some of you. He's still talking to the Corinthian church, by the way, but he says, you've been washed, you've been sanctified or set apart. You are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. The moment Jesus Christ saved you from your sins, the moment you put your faith, your trust in him, he justified you, and he gave you a new identity. And your identity is not your sexuality, but the culture says it is. All right, those are five lies that our culture teaches us. And each of these, I'm sure if, if you searched long and hard, if you were to evaluate yourself at some point in your life, you've looked, you, you've probably assumed some of these to be true, or you've lived them out. You've lived according to them in one way or the other. I think, uh, to be honest with you, because I'm going to be honest with you, I think when I look at this list, I think the one that stands out to me in moments of temptation is probably the one that says sex fills an appetite, right? If for some reason my wife and I are not intimate or haven't been intimate for a while, the temptation is, well, you deserve this. You deserve to be fed. You deserve, uh, after all, you need it. That's a lie. That's a lie. And so all of these are cultural lies that, again, we have been discipled to believe. All right. Now let's go on to circumstances in a broken world. So now we're not just looking at what culture is saying, but what about just reality of living in this world? Even though we're, our intimacy is being redeemed, yet at the same time we're living in a world, we're living with broken bodies, broken desires, broken flesh, and we're living in broken circumstances. Nothing is, nothing is guaranteed. Well, first of all, we just have selfishness, good old selfishness. All of us are prone to this. I think Denzel Washington was just in an interview recently. It's been going around social media where he quoted 2 Timothy 3. Uh, understand this, Paul said, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, and so on. And when, whether in the culture, just, just in ourselves, our own selfish flesh, when we approach an intimate relationship with our spouse, with our husband, with our wife, and it's all about what I can get out of it. First of all, we're denying the gospel of Jesus Christ who served us, the Son of Man. What did he do? He didn't come to be served. He came to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. That's what he said. That's what Jesus did. And when I say I'm a follower of Jesus, but I deny that, and I say to my wife, serve me, there's not going to be a lot of intimacy there, and I'm denying the gospel. I'm not really being a true follower of Jesus Christ. Secondly, gender differences. Well, this one, I think I need to put a table up just so you can see some of the differences of the ways that men and women literally approach from opposite sides of the bed, right? 
We approach sexuality from two different directions. For men, it is a relief. For women, it's kind of stressful. For men, it's about quantity. For women, it's about quality. For men, they're visually aroused. And for women, it's more emotional. It's more thoughtful. That's why you'll notice that pornography is different between men and women, and yet women are just as prone to a different form of pornography today as men are, and that is a growing trend that we need to be aware of, and so on. I don't mean to go through all of these. Uh, meaning, I think, is quite important, that for men it's about pleasure and relaxation, but it's also about respect. Ladies, you have to understand that it's not merely about, well, he just, he just wants the act. No, no, what he wants is for you to be sexually attracted to him. He wants you to respond to him because that shows him respect. That shows him something that goes very deep inside his soul. And that is part of the intimacy factor of this. And for women, it's about relationship and connection. Next week, we're actually going to be looking more at the gender differences and be noticing the difference between those two dynamics, between male and female, and how males are looking for completion, whereas females are looking more for connection in the relationship. Men are more prone to stepping out and doing something in the world, where women are more about receiving in and connecting with people in the world. So men are more prone to wondering, do I measure up? Am I adequate? And wives, you say a lot to your man when you deny him sexually. And you're, what you're saying, whether you're saying it or not, whether you mean to or not, what he's hearing is, I'm not adequate, I don't measure up. Right? And for women, it's about connection, and they're more prone to be asking, am I enough for him? Am I enough? Am I attractive? Do I satisfy him? Do I delight him? And so on. It's about connection. All right, let's move on. Uh, this wasn't something I wanted to spend a whole lot of time on, but the next one is history. So another, another obstacle to our intimate relationships is just either past sexual activity with a different partner or multiple partners, past sexual activity with each other, and if that's the case and you're not married here, you need to repent and stop. Repent and turn. Jesus Christ on the cross paid for that sin. Yes, he did. But if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, if you're truly born again, you need to repent now and stop. Cut that part of the relationship off and focus on the emotional and spiritual side before you ever, ever get physical. Could be addictions. A history of addictions like pornography, which eats at your soul. And, of course, secrets come with all of that. Or it could be trauma and abuse. And again, many, many abuse victims actually blame themselves for the abuse. Or don't even realize that they were abused in this way. And if that's the case, you're going to need to find a biblical counselor to help you work through that and process that. So there's history in a broken world that can stand in the way of intimacy. This is all part of the intimacy lost that Jesus on the cross is beginning to redeem for us through the power of the Holy Spirit now. 
Fourth, there are relational obstacles, such things as family dynamics. Parents may not always know the boundaries of where they should be and not be. Spouses, a disinterest in sex altogether, may not even be related to uh, gender differences. It could be a physical issue, could be disease, could be disabilities, could be issues with children, could be just the fact that you have children. (laughs) You just never know when they need you, right? Stress and grief, or times of grief, and quite often, by the way, for men, men approach it again, that a sexual relationship is comforting to them, whereas for a woman, it's something that is more stressful, so it's not so much a comfort on that side, and they might back away from it when they're in a state of grief. Or it could just be a busy season. It could be with work or with ministry. Paul talked about this. There are times, he said, that if the two of you agree to abstain for a while for prayer and fasting, that's okay before you come back together again. But listen, the point is that every effect of sin in a fallen world has to be confronted by the gospel of Jesus Christ. It has to be considered intently. Where am I broken? How am I broken? Some of us grew up in churches, church cultures, where you weren't supposed to talk about this. And what is implied in that is the fact that this is a dirty subject. It's not a dirty subject. God created this. But we enter marriage with that idea in our minds, and we cannot seem to make that switch that God delights in this with his children inside the bonds of covenant marriage. We need to consider it intently. We need to repent of the ways that we are broken, and we need to forsake, forsake, whether it's sexual sin, guilt in our past, and so on, forsake it, leave it at the cross of Jesus Christ. The death and resurrection of Jesus provides forgiveness and the power to live a new quality of life. Listen, God doesn't give us standards in this book and say, here, live up to this and then not give us the power to do it. He doesn't do that. That's the, that's the gospel. It would be bad news if all we had was the law given to us saying, here, measure up. Paul said, nope, all have fallen short of the glory of God. All have sinned, fallen short of the glory of God. You can't do it, neither can I. You see, the gospel doesn't say that you can live up to a high standard. No, the gospel says the standard is impossible. That's why God had to do it for you, right? And through Jesus Christ on the cross, you're justified, and through the power of the Holy Spirit in you, you're being sanctified. He's giving you power to live and fight temptation and so on. Galatians 2.20, Paul says, and this should be, I think every week this has been up on the screen at some point, Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. In other words, when Jesus died on the cross, it was me, it was my old life, my old sinful desires, all of that was crucified with Christ on the cross. That's history. My sins are history. They're all thrown into the depths of the sea. He says, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. That's why when when the world looks at us, they shouldn't just see good living people. We should be able to point them and say, it's not me, it's Jesus in me. 
It's the work he's doing in me, Christ who lives in me, and the life I now live in the, human, in the flesh, in my humanity right now, I live by faith in the Son of God. In other words, I'm looking to Jesus Christ to give me power, to give me self-control, to give me all that I need. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Jesus saves us from every consequence of sin. He redeems us in every way. That's what he's doing. That's the good news of the gospel. And with that, we're going to move into Scripture a little bit deeper and look at intimacy redeemed, what authentic sexuality actually looks like. And when I say authentic sexuality, I mean biblical sexuality, because the culture's definition of sex is a counterfeit of the real thing. It's a counterfeit. So you know the you know the best the best safeguard against pornography for your kids is to actually actually help them to understand what the real thing looks like and that it's beautiful. I'm not talking weirdly about any kind of visual thing. I'm talking about just show them what a healthy relationship looks like between mom and dad. Show them that. When mom and dad are flirting, when mom and dad kiss and make them feel real uncomfortable and make them go yuck and everything else, even though they're saying all that, they feel very safe at the very same time. They feel very safe. When mom and dad are fighting, they don't feel safe. You feel like, whoa, my world's turning upside down. It's, it's blowing up right now. Kids may not be able to communicate all that, but the best, the best safeguard against sexual temptation is to make sure that our children understand what authentic sexuality is, what it is, and that the original designer of it is a good designer. And what he designed is the best. What Satan is trying to do is distort it. And when he does that, he ruins you. All right, so sexual intimacy is a major theme throughout Scripture. This is why I don't understand why the church has been so silent on it. You know, one time we're going to be going into Song of Solomon tonight, and I was reading a little history of how Song of Solomon has been interpreted over the years of church history, and it's actually quite amusing to hear how, like the early church fathers, took Song of Solomon and interpreted it in a way that it was all allegory, and they took the, the very sensual details out of it, and, you know, things like, well, the, the two breasts of the woman are actually the Old Testament and the New Testament. Things like, what? <laughs> well, that, that was just the church's attempt to, hey, this is taboo. We're not going to talk about this, so somehow we're going to make it about Jesus, right? And that, that's what they did. Uh, but all through Scripture, whether it's Genesis 2 which we started with tonight, or it ends in Revelation 21 with the marriage supper of the Lamb and His bride, the church, His people. Song of Solomon devoted to marital intimacy and marital problems as well. The Old Testament narratives contain straightforward, very straightforward sexual details. Just read through Ezekiel. Read through Ezekiel 16 and you'll get, you'll get the idea. You're like, hmm, I'm going to look that up. Yeah, it's, it's pretty graphic. Hosea is another one. Uh, the apostles don't shy away from sexual issues in the church. They spoke very frankly about these things. And Jesus repeatedly confronted and addressed sexual defilement. 
God is not squeamish or silent about our sexuality. That's the point. So, we are going to move into Song of Solomon 4. And uh, Song of Solomon, I know it's been, it's been kind of taken by some and used as kind of this manual, like a how-to manual for sexuality. That is not what we're going to do with it. It's actually just a book of poems, probably a collection of songs. And in Song of Solomon 3, right at the end, we have a, a reference to a wedding on the day of his wedding, on the day of the gladness of his heart, right at verse 11. And this, this bride is watching her groom come toward her, and uh, she's just admiring him, and uh, she's so in love with him. Well, chapter 4 starts out, and it's a, a new song, but it seems to follow on from that idea of the wedding. And back in the ancient Near East, part of the wedding was the consummation of the marriage. It was part of it. The bride and groom didn't just drive off into the sunset and go on their honeymoon, and, and that was like an afterthought to the wedding. No, actually, during the party, the bride and groom would actually go off to the bridal chamber, and they would consummate the marriage while all the guests were out partying and celebrating and having a good time. And it seems to be that that's what's happening in chapter 4 of Song of Solomon, because he actually mentions a veil, he actually, when he's describing her, he describes her behind her veil in verse 3, and it seems to be that this is a man who is seeing his wife for the very first time on their wedding night, we'll call it, whether it was nighttime, I don't know, and it really doesn't matter. But Song of Solomon is really a celebration of restored or redeemed sexual intimacy. In other words, what Genesis 2.25, what we read at the beginning, was as an ideal, man and woman naked and unshamed in the garden, Song of Solomon, or Song of Songs, celebrates this picture in a broken and over-sexualized world. It celebrates it and says, you know what? This can be attained through the power of, well, I know the Old Testament was not necessarily directly about Jesus Christ, but we have the whole Bible, so we can say through the power of Christ, right? Through the power of the Messiah that was coming to die on the cross and redeem what was broken in the world. But it also provides a healthy balance, Song of Solomon provides a healthy balance between celebration and caution when it comes to human sexual love or intimacy. You see, it's beautiful and deadly at the same time. We have to understand that, but what we're dealing with here it's beautiful and deadly at the same time. Sexual intimacy is beautiful in its, in its boundaries, but it'll break your neck outside those boundaries. It will eat at your soul. It will kill you. So we have both, and in Song of Solomon 8, verse 6, I believe it's the bride speaking, and she says, Set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm, for love is strong as death. Jealousy is fierce as the grave. Its flashes are flashes of fire, the very flame of the Lord. Many waters cannot quench love, neither can floods drown it. If a man is offered for love all the wealth of his house, he would be utterly despised. The point is that love, intimacy, is powerful. It is strong, and it can wreck you. It can wreck your relationships. It can wreck your marriage. It can wreck your home. That's why adultery rips marriages apart like nothing else. Well, what we're going to do is we're going to go through Song of Solomon 4, 
and, which appears again to be a, the wedding night. It's a poem, a song, it's not a how-to manual. So we're just gonna notice some basic principles without inventing new meaning to God's word. We're not tr- gonna try and crack the code of this poetry. I don't understand it all, but I do see the, the principles in it. Here's the first one. Oh, there we go. Husbands, your words and your actions matter. Let's read verses 1 to 7. Behold, you are beautiful, my love. Behold, you are beautiful. Your eyes are doves behind your veil. There it is. Your hair is like a flock of goats leaping down the slopes of Gilead. Now, notice right away how he's describing his bride. First of all, he's using words to describe her, but he's starting with her head, and he's, he's moving downward. Your teeth are like a flock of shorn ewes, or sheep that have come up from the washing. In other words, you brush your teeth. All of which bear twins. In other words, top and bottom kind of match. And not one among them has lost its young. In other words, none of them are missing. All right. Your lips, something to be thankful for, right? Your lips are like a scarlet thread, and your mouth is lovely. Your cheeks are like halves of a pomegranate, Uh, behind your veil. I mean, I have no idea what any of this means, but obviously it was very meaningful to her. It must have been, or he wouldn't have said it. Your neck is like the Tower of David built in rows of stone. On it hang a thousand shields, all of them shields of warriors. Speaking of her strength at this point. Your two breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle that graze among the lilies until the day breathes and the shadows flee. In other words, all night long. Say, really? That's in the Bible? Yeah, that's in the Bible. I will go away to the mountain of myrrh and the hill of frankincense. And then he says, you are altogether beautiful, my love. There is no flaw in you. Listen, this man is praising his wife, telling her how beautiful she is, not just for what he can get. Men, we need to learn how to touch the soul of our wives before we ever touch her body. I think sometimes men approach marriage, approach intimacy with this idea. Again, this is a cultural mindset that if I just touch her in certain places, uh, she'll turn on for me. That's not how it works. You know, in a Christian marriage, do you want to know the, the way your wife is going to feel the safest with you? Pray with her. Say, yeah? That's a turn on? Yeah, it is. Pray with her. Touch her soul before you ever touch her body. Dr. Larry Crabb said, had Adam felt aroused only by the prospect of physical pleasure, Eve, like so many wives today, would have eventually felt used and unwanted as a person rightly offended by a lust for her body that took little interest in her soul. That's a very important thing to understand. The other thing I want to notice, the most uncomfortable verse out of this entire text, is, of course, when he's describing her breast as fawns. I wonder why he's doing this. I like to run in the morning, and I've seen deer out while I'm running, and I'm not quite sure what the what the parallels are here, but I do understand this, that when the deer lift their heads and look at me, they're, they're thinking one thing, should I stay or should I run? Is this guy gonna hurt me? Or is he going to be careful? 
Is he going to care for me? I think the idea that this man is describing is the gentle nature of his wife. Timid. She's vulnerable at this point. She has just jumped off a cliff trusting that her husband would catch her and not let her fall. The inner voice of every little girl screams their physical flaws. But this husband is declaring, there is no flaw in you. That's powerful healing for wives growing up in a culture of fake perfection. Can I make one encouragement, one piece of advice to dads in this room who have teenage daughters or even younger daughters? Do not stop hugging your daughters as they start to develop. I actually, um, my daughter uh, was somewhere with a few other girls and um, I hadn't seen her all day and she ran over and gave me a hug and I didn't think anything of it. Except that some of the teenagers in the group kind of expressed, that's weird, you hug your dad? I understand, I think if I hadn't been advised and challenged to do this when, uh, when she was younger, I probably would have naturally backed away too. As our daughters start to develop, we get a little bit uncomfortable. But her, her inner voice, when we back away from our little girls, as they grow older, her inner voice begins to say, there must be something wrong with me. If that's the case, And if that has been the case, I would highly suggest you have a conversation with your daughter and you begin to hug her again. Let her know there's no flaw in you. There's no flaw in you. But that is the the very nature of what this man is saying to his wife. This is why Dr. Kevin Lehman wrote a book called Sex Begins in the Kitchen. It begins with your words. It begins when you come home and put the dishes away or help clean the dishes, or help cook dinner. It begins with your words. It begins by letting your wife know that you love her for who she is as a person, not merely for her physical figure. Secondly, stepping away from the outside world is essential. Look at verse 8. He says to her, Come with me from Lebanon, my bride. Come with me from Lebanon. Depart from the peak of Amana, from the peak of Sinur, And Hermon, from the dens of lions, from the mountains of leopards, he's calling his wife away from her home. There must be a a leaving and a cleaving, a true sanctuary, a true exclusivity to this relationship. That's why God said that a man will leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is an exclusive relationship. Stepping away from the outside world. There are elements of your relationship that are intended for just the two of you alone. By the way, make sure you go to bed at the same time every night. I know that's hard when you have shift work, but in your marriage, make sure that you make a point of going to bed at the same time every night. Not for the sake that anything's going to happen every single night. That's not why. Just make it a habit of going to bed every night at the same time. Don't let anything or anyone interfere between the two of you. Some guys and girls get married and still think that they're single. 
And he's off with his buddies, and she's out with her girlfriends all the time, and they're not spending time together. And this husband is saying to his wife, come away, come away with me. I want you to be at the center of my life. That's what marriage is supposed to be. Here's number three. Have eyes for your spouse only. He says to her in verse nine, you have captivated my heart, my sister, my bride. You say, my sister? Whoa, what? That's weird. Uh, This had nothing to do with incest. It was an ancient Near East way of just saying, this is someone like me. This is someone close to my heart. This is someone like family in that sense. It was uh, like, like Adam saying when he saw Eve for the first time, this is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. That's all it meant. So he says, my sister, my bride, you have captivated my heart with one glance of your eyes, with one jewel of your necklace. How beautiful is your love, my sister, my bride. How much better is your love than wine and the fragrance of your oils than any spice. It's necessary, especially for guys to guard their eyes and ladies to guard their hearts emotionally. It's necessary that we guard ourselves for each other and not let any temptation, not let there be any kind of vacuum that leaves a void emotionally or visually that needs to be filled by something else. When you fill your life with captivation, uh, captivation towards your spouse, there's no room for temptation, or there should be little room. Obviously, we still live in a broken world, and we still have the flesh. You're both going to change over time physically, right? I'm not as thin as I was when we got married. I'm actually kind of thankful for that. I was too skinny. But the point being, we are going to change over time. But guess what? As we change, doesn't matter. My eyes are on my spouse, and she's the one for me. She changes her hair color from brown to blonde, then I'm into blondes now. If she changes back to brunette, I'm into brunettes now. Whatever she is, she's mine, and I'm captivated by her. Pursue your wife, men. Pursue her. That's what she wants. She wants to know, am am I worthy of being pursued? She wants you to pursue her. She wants you to notice her. Pursue her over everything else, of course, except God. All right. Number four, sexual love is reserved for covenant love. Verse 11, your lips drip nectar, my bride. Honey and milk are under your tongue. What kind of kiss is that, by the way? It's not a French kiss. The French weren't even around yet. So you can't can't say that the French invented this. But it's very sensual, isn't it? The fragrance of your garments is like the fragrance of Lebanon. A garden locked is my sister, my bride. Notice this. He's speaking with deep respect at this point. She's a garden that's locked. In other words, she's private property. Not just any man is allowed to come in here and enjoy the fruit of this garden. And by the way, a garden in this case, most scholars are pretty agreed on this, that this is talking about the body of your wife, the body of the female body of the bride in this case. A garden locked is my sister, my bride. A spring locked, a fountain sealed. Your shoots are an orchard of pomegranates with all the choicest fruits, henna and nard, nard and saffron, calamus and cinnamon, 
with all trees of frankincense, myrrh and aloes, with all choice spices, a garden fountain, a well of living water, and flowing streams from Lebanon. This kind of private property builds intimacy. He respects her for not allowing other men to use her. Now, again, I must go back to the gospel and say that while we live in a broken world and we all have broken pasts, that the cross of Jesus Christ is enough to cover every sin, every transgression, and to give you power to live this way. If you're not living this way, start tonight. Repent and move on. But he respects her for not allowing men to use her. The more valuable something is, the more we guard it from those who would abuse it. This is why modesty is so important. We're covering, we're guarding. We're not allowing others to enjoy this garden who don't belong here. So this isn't to discourage people, but to hold up the standard God calls for knowing that he also gives the power to live it out. Let's move on. Let love awaken when it is right. This is number five, verse 16. Look at what, he, what she, she says. She's responding now. Awake. He has said all he's going to say. He's been showing his admiration for her. He's been expressing how beautiful she is to him, and now she responds This is the picture of this quiet garden that no one has stepped foot in yet coming to life. Now up till now, back in chapter 3, verse 5, she had been saying, I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or the does of the field, that you do not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. Because guess what? Before love pleases, it destroys And she's been saying up until now, don't awaken love until it's going to please, until it's going to glorify God. And that's inside covenant marriage. Now she says, awake, O north wind, and come, O south wind. I have no idea why she's talking about the north wind or the south wind. The only thing I can think of, and again, scholars are kind of clueless too. They're like, I have no idea what this means. Some have tried to crack the code, but they're really... I don't think there is a benefit to that at all. The only thing we see is this garden is coming to life. She's becoming aroused. She's starting to respond to her husband's advances, her husband's love, her husband's words of gratification. Blow upon my garden. Let its spices flow. Let my beloved come to his garden and eat its choicest fruits. She's receiving him into herself. Many Christians struggle with making this switch from don't awake, don't awake, don't awake, don't awake, don't awake, and then the wedding comes and awake. By the way, you know, I know when we got married, we thought, we thought it was like a, a, a gift that's all wrapped up in a bow, you know, and then on your wedding night, you're just going to unwrap the gift that God has given you, and you're just going to enjoy that gift forever. And like Dr. Julie Slattery says, you didn't get a wrapped gift on your wedding night, you got a box of Lego. And you got to spend the rest of the time trying to figure this out. Okay, I, I, do we have directions for this? I don't even know what we're supposed to do with this. And you got a whole lifetime to build out of that Lego. But that's the point. That's the point. And she is beginning to awaken to his advances, and she's beginning to respond. Number six, 
Now this one I, I put in a format that is called phrase diagramming so that we can see a few things. Sexual intimacy is nourishing to the soul. Again, within marriage, where love pleases, sexual intimacy is nourishing to the soul. Notice this man is now responding. She has responded and said, basically invited him to come and enjoy. He's responding to her, I came, I gathered, I ate, I drank. Notice how many times he says, mine. What a beautiful thing when a husband can say, she's mine. I have covenanted to live, to provide, to protect her for life. She's mine. That's an awesome thing. And over and over he says, I came to my garden, my sister, my bride. I gathered my myrrh with my spice. I ate my honeycomb with my honey. I drank my wine with my milk. It's nourishing. It's healthy. Do you know that this is the only time that a man's brain releases oxytocin, that connection hormone, it's the only time at sexual climax when a man actually senses that deep spiritual connection with his wife. God made it that way. It's nourishing. It builds him up. And she's nourished by it as well because he's attracted to her. She's connected with him. She invites him in and he possesses her. With marriage comes a mutual possession, a mutual giving to each other, serving each other. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 7 when he was talking about this, he said the husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. And in verse 5 of 1 Corinthians 7, this is a key term that Paul uses. He says, do not deprive one another. And even though I said earlier that it is a cultural lie that sex is an appetite that must be filled, you need it or you'll die, that's not true. But inside marriage, if you want to feed this marriage and strengthen this marriage, do not deprive, Paul says. He uses that word. Do not hold back nourishment from one another except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer. But then, he says, come back together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. God wants to nourish husbands and wives in a covenant marriage. He's a good God. Everything he has done is good and perfect. It is to be enjoyed, and this husband is moving into this garden, and he is enjoying the fruit of it. And this is what marriage is supposed to look like. This is what redeemed intimacy is supposed to look like. This is what an aspect of what Jesus died for. He's died for every aspect of our lives, even in the realm of sexual intimacy. Number seven. Sexual intimacy within a covenant relationship is endorsed, well, by the community and by God. Remember I said the, the wedding parties going on outside, the bridal chamber, the, the, the marriage is being consummated in the room, and it's like the guests are speaking now, and they're saying, eat, friends, drink, and be drunk with love. This is something to be promoted, not like 
the types of sexual deviancy that Hollywood tries to promote, that the culture tries to promote, this is what God promotes. This is God's word. And he's saying, have your fill of it. There's no other time that God says ever to get drunk. Drunkenness is sin when it comes to alcohol, but when it comes to sexual intimacy between a husband and wife who've covenanted to live together as one flesh for life, God says, knock yourselves out. Be drunk with love. The community's endorsement reflects a good God who delights in the happiness of his people. I think often we've gotten the idea that God doesn't want us to be happy. In fact, we've said it in other nights. I know Gary Thomas has said, well, marriage is about making us holy rather than making us happy. But Gary Thomas will also say as a disclaimer that holiness leads to happiness. It always does. Because our God is the blessed God. He's the happy God. It's who he is. And the gospel in the end promotes true happiness. And that happiness comes through him and what he offers to us and his good gifts. And this is one of them. All right. Well, that's Song of Solomon 4 and the beginning of chapter 5, and those are some very basic uh, principles that ought to be lived out in every Christian marriage, every Christian home. Well, there are just four conclusions, concluding uh, remarks that I want to make about restoring sexuality that glorifies God, because I'm sure all of us read through that and we say, you know what, we've got a long ways to go. That box of Lego is nowhere near built, right? Still kind of a pile on the floor. And uh, of course, there are a lot of good books on the, the, these subjects, um, and we are gonna have a discussion in a minute here, but I just want to maybe give four takeaways. The first one being embrace your new identity, and that is in Christ. If you're not a believer in this room tonight, then I would invite you to repent Turn to Jesus Christ. Surrender your life to him. Let him be Lord of your life and Savior of your life. Embrace your new identity. Your identity is not your sexuality. It's who you are in Christ. And there's so much in the New Testament about that. Who am I? So much about our identity as a child of God, redeemed, justified, reconciled, forgiven, and so on. The list is long. Secondly, confront the brokenness. Confront it. Don't hide it. I went through my 20s hiding some of my brokenness, some of my guilt that came from, from my teenage life, from a pornography addiction at one point, trying to hide this shame. But you know, when I came out in the open, 1 John 1 tells us when we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with, with another. And when I finally was able to spill my guts to another older believer uh, that I trusted, and I didn't know how he was going to respond, and he actually, he didn't respond by condemning me, he responded by praying through this with me. When that happened, I was freed like I've never been freed before. And I'll tell you, Jesus on the cross dying for my sin kind of outs me, right? It, I've got nothing left to prove. I was so messed up that the God of the universe had to come and clean up that mess by dying himself on a cross. What do I have left to prove? Why would I keep trying to perform in some way? No, we confront the brokenness, walk in the light. This might mean that if in the bedroom, in your 
intimate relationship, there are issues, there's division, things aren't happening, it might mean that you need to have a talk with your spouse. You, you need to be able to open the communication, confront that brokenness, whatever it is. Might even stem back to childhood abuse. It could stem back to some kind of trauma, some kind of history that you've just buried. It's down deep and you've never confronted it. Confront the brokenness. Repent of it. Find counseling if you need it. Find a, a support group to get around you, men's discipleship groups, women's groups, whatever it is. Have people, of course, use discretion. You don't just spill everything everywhere. Use discretion with this, but find someone you can trust. As Paul said, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the love of Christ. Galatians 6. Third, learn to give and serve. When it comes to intimacy and when, even Song of Solomon, as we're reading through that, it's not about what I can get, it's about what I can give. This is, again, is a way we play out the gospel. It's another way we just demonstrate the glory of God that he gave of himself. He thought not of himself but of us and ministered to us by giving his life a ransom for many. We learn to give and serve. We're going to actually talk more in depth about that next week. And number four, enjoy good pleasures as a gift from God. There's no guilt in the good pleasures of God for his people. The one thing we need to be very careful with Again, is that we don't follow the culture and make it an idol. In other words, we worship sexual intimacy as though it is the God, as though it is the source of our happiness. No, we don't do that. God is the source of our happiness. This just happens to be a gift that he has given. Now, he hasn't given it to all of us. Some of us may not be there right now. And that's okay. We trust him in those in those situations. We trust him with our lives. No matter what it is, he gives us the power. He sustains us. But when we have good gifts given to us in this way, like Song of Solomon portrays, we enjoy the pleasures God gives us and it delights his heart and it glorifies him. It glorifies him. And it also provides, you know, when our, when our children look on, when the generations, I remember just after we were married, we were actually on our honeymoon, we were down in Florida, and we went out for lunch on the Sunday. We went to church on the Sunday, and there was an older couple at church, and they, they offered to take us for lunch. And we went for lunch with them, and we were sitting there. Uh, I can't remember what the restaurant was, but she was talking a lot, and he was kind of eating, and he was hard of hearing, and every once in a while he'd look up and he'd say, are you talking about me again? And she was just bragging on him, and telling us all kinds of stories about their relationship, and their history, and how they fell in love, and everything. And, Angie and I were just sitting in the restaurant, and, you know, we're on our honeymoon thinking, that's how we want to end up. We want to end up with a relationship like that. We want to grow old like that. And of course, that's when we enjoy the good pleasures of God, when we delight in relationship with each other and enjoy the benefits of his redemption, then we have those, we, we glorify him. We reflect his glory to the world. All right, well, Again, um, let's go with a 10-minute break. Again, let's come back at about 7.50. And again, like in past weeks, we're going to have a, a talk. And again, if there are questions during the discussion, things aren't clear, just feel free to text them to the number, and um, we'll try and guide the conversation as best we can. All right, so 7.50, uh, we'll start.
Well, it takes a special couple to uh, willingly agree to a night like this. So, as I was thinking through which couples to help on specific nights, of course, I think up until now it's worked out, right, Derek and Jody? Yes. And uh, tonight we have Jim and Lori McCammon, who we have worked alongside in the pre-marriage ministry, and they are actually assuming uh, the leadership uh, role of that ministry right now and have some background in marriage crisis mentoring in your past, correct? Correct. So they have decided to join us. They're, sorry, should I say they're crazy enough to join us tonight. And uh, this is obviously a topic that needs some boldness, some courage, and uh, some willingness to open up in a way that helps and benefits God's people and glorifies God at the same time. So, Jim and Lori, welcome. Thank, Thank you. you for coming. And um, just want to ask you right off the bat how long you've been married, um, your background, how you met each other, uh, you know, and what stage of life you're at right now. Okay. So, uh, we've been married for 35 years. Um, we were not saved when we were married. We, uh, we actually met in a bar uh, Poncho Mulligans down, uh, down near the river on Wyandotte. Uh, they had the backroom club, and uh, I had seen this dazzling young lady dancing, and... Uh, I was actually knocked down by a <laughs> drunk, and he noticed me. Yeah, so... Sounds romantic. So a Actually. buddy of mine thought she looked pretty, uh, pretty good, too, so he went and he danced with her, and he asked her a bunch of stuff, and... Uh, Came back, so I pumped him for information. And then I, uh, at some point during the night, I asked her to dance, and I regurgitated everything he told me about her. And uh, she's got a mind like a trap. She, she knows every face. She remembers everything, right? And <laughs> she couldn't place me. So For someone who knew so much about me? Yeah, yeah. And then, she, then at the end of the night, she saw me hanging out with, uh, with my buddy. Um, so I asked her if I could get her number and, you know, if we could go for a, a date when I was in town because I was in, uh, going to Western. I was home uh, for spring break. I was working at the time because he was going to ask out an older woman. Yes, mm. yes. So, uh, so we dated for... Um, year, year and a half? Yes. Well, that was February we met, and you uh, proposed to me while I was curling my hair yes. in the bathroom. It was very romantic. For uh, going to church, and at that time, he was in a Protestant church, and I was in the Catholic church, and so his church didn't matter. Yeah, so, she, had, uh, she had to go to my church and then go to real church. Right, so I had to leave, and so, hmm. as my parents put it, go to real yeah. church, so we had some issues there to uh, start with. Um, I guess, I guess a, a, a part in our relationship that was um, probably uh, turned a corner was his family was putting a birthday party on for me, and Jim does Ironman distance triathlons. Well, dis she, so she asked me not to do full Ironman distance races anymore because it, it was taking a little too much time out of our time, right? right? Yeah. But at that time, so, he but was full-blown yeah. back then. And so I said, well, you know, I'm not sure if you should go. You might be late. This is your family putting on the party. No, 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 it'll be fine. 
My, my friend promised me we'd be back in time so I could take her to her party. It was so not fine because <laughs> the party was supposed to start at 4 and he comes to the door at 5.30 uh, and I wouldn't let him in. I told him to go home and uh, I said, I, didn't wanna, I don't want to see you go home and he would not leave. He would not get off my porch. He, he apologized, he said it would never happen again, give him another chance, I told him to go home and looked out the window and the guy's still on the porch. <laughs> so I said, okay, well, maybe this one's got some stick to and that was 37 years ago and it has never happened yeah, again. No. So how, um, how long have you been married? 35. 35, 35 years, yes. okay. So uh, we, we got married, I was still, I was, so I started working at Ford, um, motor at, during the summers to pay for school and got a two-year internship to do my uh, master's and then um, worked there for 32 and a half years and spent a lot of time uh, in the States traveling and that kind of stuff. So, we, you know, that was we, that'll, yeah, that was a kind of a strain, strain our relationship. Anybody that works in production type things, you're working 10, 12 hours a day, seven days a week, yeah. you know, because when people when there's demand you, you make product right mm -hmm. it's feast or famine so because he worked so much and everything we decided when we had children i would stay at home and so uh i became a stay-at-home mom it took us a number of years to have our first son we had a lot of uh issues and uh, that caused a lot of uh, stress, particularly on my part, because as a, as a young girl, one of my nicknames was Little Guy because a lot of people thought I was a boy. I was always in a baseball uniform or track. I, I ran track and I played uh, travel ball. And so uh, my nickname was either Peanut or Little Guy because people literally thought I was a boy. And so when, when all this happened and then I, I couldn't, conceive and there were just you know a lot of issues uh that where that way for me and then he was gone a lot so these were really we really i'd, didn't I'd come home that. and she'd literally she'd be in the hospital right like i hmm. there'd be a note because there are no no cell phones or stuff back then right there'd be a note on the on the table or on the door lawyers at the hospital so, so we decided if we did get to have children, they were going to be a priority, and I uh, stayed at home. Yeah. And you made a decision. You went to your boss at one point after we had the children, and you were working seven days a week, and he said, I'm going to work five days. I'm going to work eight hours a day, so tell me now if I don't have a job, because this is what I'm working. So it, that it, just... It worked out. Now <laughs> that was a turn-on. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. yeah, good. So, that's, so now I, he's uh, retired, or and now retiring so, so I again. So retired, and then my former employer asked me to come back and help out. And I, I had listened to one of Aaron's sermons about you, you know you should work six days a week, and and so I went, oh okay, well maybe I will go back to work. Yeah. I could have worked somewhere else though. I think. Yeah. <laughs> at, at home, we've been yes. working. So we've been working on a home reno for eight years, which. Typically, would divorce a couple. But, this, uh, and this is our fifth house we've worked on. Yes. So far, so far we've been doing okay. So with this, <laughs> you know. I think that goes into your next question. Eh? It does. So you've alluded to some things that have um, caused some breakdowns in intimacy. 
Do you want to go into a little more detail maybe with one or two experiences that you guys have had that you're willing to share with us? Yeah. So, um, you know, we all bring our own baggage into each relationship, right? And, and so some of the stuff that you do when you're dating, initially, you know, it's, it's a kind of a turn on or whatever, um, but sometimes it wears out after, you know, nine months mm -hmm. or, or whatever. But uh, with, with Lori... Are you talking about the infatuation yeah, type yeah, stage? Yeah, infatuation type stages. And right, because we, we both brought our own personal pursuits. He triathlons and, and the running, the, the swimming and the cycling. And mine was uh, social things. We, we brought both of that and thought okay. we would maintain that. And he, he was going to change, so we were going to be all good. Yeah. yeah, I didn't change. No. And she didn't change. No, either. and I didn't change. So we, we had a lot of, uh, of, of scheduling issues of things like that and very didn't understand each other's needs very well at all. But and we, quite were, frankly, we were selfish. Yeah, right? we were very we were selfish, selfish and we didn't really care. Yeah. He had a meal on the, on the plate and then, on the then, table uh, when he came home, so he was good. You know, yeah. Lord, when she really did get sick, I, I didn't understand. She had lupus and... There's a lot of bad things that happen with lupus in terms of energy levels and brain fog and just lethargic. And I kind of took it as lazy and yeah. no interest in me and yeah. that type of stuff, right? And uh, th that was a really tough time. I, we, I don't think we ever said, hey, you know, we're going to get divorced or anything, but we were not in a in a good, good place. And, and at the same time, uh, his brother attempted suicide. And so he flew out west to deal with yeah. that. And it was just while being there and, and listening to his ex-wife that he came that, to That was kind of a, a turning point because I, I had to confront her and I said, you're going to divorce my brother as just, you know, as he's kind of attempted suicide. I said, so what, what about your vows? Like, did that not mean anything for better, for worse, sickness and health? And when that happened, I just, I broke down crying. And I, you know, I came home and I had to apologize. I asked that, I had to ask forgiveness from Lori. Were you Christians at this point? No. no. In fact, no. My, my illness is how I came to know uh, the Lord. Like, we had a Bible in our home our mm. whole life. In fact, my job on Saturday was to dust it. Mm. But if we <laughs> hit it with a ball or something, we were reprimanded. And if you opened it, that was, that was a no-no. So I did not know God's word that way. Mm. I just knew it through the, the mass okay. type of thing. But it was just through the illness. And I, I almost went in the ditch falling asleep, taking our son to the library. Mm. And I basically said, God, kill me or fix me because I can't take care of my, I can't take care of my family. He would carry me up to bed yeah. at night. Our, what was so heartbreaking, our little boy, um, I woke up on the floor and he had chewed through the peel of a banana oh, wow. because he needed something to eat and had ripped a, 
uh, loaf of bread open the plastic open to get something to eat because he couldn't wake me up so our son dealt with a lot of trauma terrorizing when your mother so I, I just I just cried out on from the the floor and it was a chiropractor that introduced me to um, actually a nutritional company who were born-again Christians and I listened to their testimony and I said I don't know that God I don't know a God like that and that's when I I asked him to uh, to save me that I didn't need healing I needed saving mm. and, uh, and and that was and, the start and of through it. the group of friends that we got to know sure. we uh, we actually realized you know the significance of, of what the blood meant and how that is basically what took away our sin mm. and, and was forgiveness right because um, I, I had gone to we'd both gone to church all our lives but it was a matter of recognizing the significance of the blood of christ so i think that was 11 years into our marriage i think it was 36 it was, at the, like, wow. at 19, the time 1998 wow. 99 yeah. yeah and and so what the i i i i still have a hallelujah dance over this because i was at somebody's house and i saw her bible study and i said what, what's that and she said uh, oh i go to a bible study and i said i have to go to that I didn't even own a Bible. I oh, went wow. and bought one. I signed up for this Bible study, and it was the book of Genesis. But what they did is every concept that God introduced, we went all over the New Testament to find mm. it. So when he talked about the family, when we went to Ephesians, we went to see how it is with the one. Yeah. And I was so convicted because I was not a respectful wife. I have a mm. big mouth. And my my was, dad used to call her a freight train. Yes, yes, he did. <laughs> <laughs> she, she was very, very point blank she told and and that's i mean one of the things i love about her right is she will tell you the truth no matter yeah what yeah. what it means you're never guessing she's tell, no. but she's telling yeah. it in love right well okay no, no actually i didn't Not, i never well, did before you do but now I, yes yes and so those are those are just some of the real challenges we had a lot of we had uh, five grandparents die uh, during our uh, first uh, probably 15 years of marriage, his father passed away. His brother finally did commit suicide later. Mm. I lost my brother. So we had a lot of things like that. And, and Andrew, you were right. He would run for comfort in the bedroom. And I'd be like, oh my goodness, I can't deal with this. It's just, yeah. 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 And so yeah. those well, things were Especially when, when, you know, after traveling, you, as a guy, I'd come home and I'd yes. want to jump in bed right, right? and yes. she'd be like give me three days let's talk for can we talk for three yes. days <laughs> need to connect then, right not that long. connect <laughs> yeah but uh, yes yeah and and so we we uh yeah those were just some of the things that would really break down past things um lack of trust we were both sexually active before mm, we yeah. got married we my education sexually was a pamphlet on menstruation, and you didn't say anything farther yeah. than that. My, mm. my, my education was my grandfather had Playboy books and penthouse books yeah. and that kind of stuff stacked up in the basement. So I think you're the, you're the walking example of taboo and idolatry. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> Coming from two different sides. We, 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 that was not something we talked about. So I learned about... Uh, relationships from romance novels and from sure. songs and movies and it was just and, <gasps> yeah. for me yes. it was more emotional appetite yeah. I, I need it yes, yes. 
Well, that was actually going to be the next question. Oh. Uh, basically, <laughs> uh, <laughs> you're jumping ahead a little bit, but oh, it's sorry. all right. Uh, basically, the cultural lies that we brought up, you just brought them up, so it's a, it's a very easy segue. Um, which ones would have misled you the most of all of them? So we had sex and intimacy being separate, uh, sex happens instinctively, uh, sex fills an appetite, sex follows feelings, or sex as an expression of identity. Which one, maybe pick one, that would have misled you the most? Yeah, for me it was sex as an appetite based on the pornography sure. I'd been exposed to and, you know, getting, being promiscuous a little, a lot too early. And then I had a girlfriend mm -hmm. who, you know, we were going out and she had sex with a friend and, you know, that. Painful. It, and then after that, you know, I, it was like, okay, we're done. And then relationships yeah. after that were just messed up. And, sure. and then I had another girlfriend who I thought, this is the one. And it was like, okay, well, you know what? I think I want to have to see other people and stuff like this. And mm -hmm. so, well, I think in what culture calls an appetite is quite frankly an addiction. Yeah. Would and, you have said that? We played, you know, you have a few drinks and you start yes. playing strip poker and stuff yeah. like that, right? It, yeah. It was All just those very unsaved kind of uh, sure. activities that we didn't have sure. a clue yeah. were so incredibly harmful. Harmful, yeah. I, I had mine was um, the the sex follows feelings. So okay. if if you love someone, well, then that's just the natural progression because that's what the romance novels would teach you. That's what the movies, the music, even back in the, uh, in the late 70s, early 80s, that was very much a theme then too. Sure. And we fell, I fell for it, hook, line, and sinker. Hmm. Yeah. Okay, so looking at your marriage, you're not believers when you get married. You both come to Christ. How did becoming believers affect the quality of intimacy in your relationship? Well, I think we actually could confide in each other and and we actually made a point to work to try and take care of the other right so not being selfish um, we had to change some things of that were uh, part of our natural families so Jim's yeah. family, you would walk in and I'd say, oh, everybody's gone. And he'd say, no, nope, everybody's here. And there was not a sound. And he'd walk into my house and he's like, oh my goodness, you guys having a party? Like, it's crazy. And I go, nope, it's just us. <laughs> so uh, just we, so we, he had to learn to talk. And I had to learn to be quiet. Yeah, no, I had to learn to ask for what I wanted. Yeah. And, and take part in, and take in discussion. Part in, yeah. yeah, when you're as analytical as... I'm, a, I'm a math guy, right? So put me in a room with numbers and let me work on a computer. I'm happy. I don't, I don't need anybody around. Just I, I'm fine, right? I can go for eight-hour bike rides, 10-hour bike rides. I'm, I'm good all by myself. So did the gospel impact the oh. change there? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. When we, when we learned that uh, we are new creations in Christ. Oh, your identity. Oh, that was... Yeah. That, uh, for, for me, I didn't have to be that strange middle child anymore, the bookworm, mm -hmm. the da-da-da. I, did, I didn't have to be any of those sure. things anymore, the wounded little 
sickly. I was always the sickly one. That's what I was known as. I didn't have yeah. to be that anymore because I was brand new. That, that was profound for mm -hmm. me. And you didn't have to be that young man who identity sexually yeah. was yeah. through yeah. Pornography. pornography. Yeah. So that was that was profound for uh, for us, and like Jim said, the, the knowing that that blood of Christ is what changed mm. everything. So I was able to start when I when I read that in Ephesians that the wife is to respect her husband. I said, then the only way I'm going to be able to do that is to be able to close my mouth mm -hmm. and lift my issues up to the Lord rather than just spilling everything on him that he should be changing and he should be doing yeah. this i took it i learned to take it to the lord and i learned the value of silence yeah. and I, I didn't have to fix everything and see and that's it that's a funny thing that we that, learned that's too what i do right is I, I try and fix stuff all the time so. yeah the gospel takes the pressure off doesn't it yeah and he he now says to me uh, do I need he, to fix that? Right. He'll say <laughs> when we're going to have a convert, I say, oh, Kelly, I need to, I need to talk to you about something. He says, okay, is it something I'm going to need to fix? And I said, no, I think I just need you to listen. Oh, okay. We have to establish <laughs> that ahead of time already. Yeah. Otherwise, Jim's already fixing it before it's even out of my, uh, out of my mouth. Yeah. I think God took some, something of our sinful nature too, and we're both extremely stubborn. Uh, pig-headed was the term that was used in my childhood and so I, I think we it it was like in Genesis 50 when Joseph says you meant it for evil mm. but God meant it for good because we decided that we were going to use that stubbornness to to love each other to choose to love each make, other make mm. it a decision rather than this whole idea of uh, of feelings yeah. and uh, that was um, that was life-changing you're saying you can choose to love. You Is that can. What you're saying? Don't have a choice. That's good. Yeah. Well, let's talk about intimacy for a little bit. Um, so intimacy is far more, I know we talked a lot about sexuality tonight, but intimacy is far deeper than that. It's really the opening up of two souls to each other. Um, it's really more of an emotional nakedness, not just a physical nakedness. Um, and we live in a broken world where that's very, very difficult. Mm. Um, could you share some of the obstacles uh, that you faced and maybe even face now, um, little foxes like we read in Song of Solomon, um, that held you back or that hold you back from sharing the deepest parts of your heart with each other? So, so part of it, and we actually, uh, through the mentoring that we've been actually just doing lately is the uh, the five love languages the book oh, yeah. you know we had kind of heard I had heard of it before and sure. but we actually just both read it again well she read it again yeah. but um, is actually understanding what your partner your spouse actually needs to feel loved right because mm. we all have different needs and some people it's affirmation some people it's you know uh, quality time, quality time. Um, can you name all five, just so people uh, know what they are? Actually, I just put you on the spot. So you mentioned so, quality, uh, time, quality time, words of affirmation. affirmation. Um, yeah, acts of service. Acts I need of service. help here. I'm going. Call a friend. Um, yeah, physical touch. <laughs> yeah, physical touch. And what's the fifth and one? And then gifts. Yes. Yep. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. 
I think one of the things that got in the way. But but the one thing is that I I guess that was most most, uh, interesting to me was that you tend to give your spouse what it is you need most, right? So if you need affirmation, you tend to give them affirmation, and that may not be what they actually need, right? Um, So so I think one of the things that uh, obstacles we faced was unforgiveness. Okay. Some, some things from the past that we, I was still holding on, I can't speak for him, but things I was holding on to, um, something, some way he had reacted before he was saved, and I'm thinking, oh my goodness, I can't share this with him, he will go right back where we were, and I can't, I won't do that. Um, but the Holy Spirit worked on my heart and had to um, speak it, and... It wasn't even an issue. It, it was all built up in my uh, in my head. Sure. Yeah. So why did you why did you step back? What what made you protect from sharing with him through that with the unforgiveness? What what is it that makes a person kind of hide, go into hiding? Um, I didn't think he'd be able to love me if mm. I said what, okay. uh, what I had to say. Um, and it would also have been um, hurts from the past, bad relate, poorly um, executed or relationships from the ba- past sure. that ended poorly. And I, and I, I kind of projected that onto him mm-hmm. and, and it yeah. couldn't have been further from the truth. And selfishness too, mm-hmm. I, I just think. Uh, he doesn't deserve to hear this kind of thing or that, yeah. that type of yeah. thing. Mm-hmm. Someone actually texted in a question about going to bed at the same time, oh. which uh, was, a, was actually intended to mean that you and your spouse go to bed at the same time. Um, would you say that had we been do. a benefit for the two of you? Yeah. Yes. And, and we have never, ever, even when we've had spats, Slept in separate beds. Nope. Okay. Never. Never. Now I, I have trouble We've always sleeping. tried. We've always tried to, you know, never Not go, go to, to bed, bed mad right. or angry. Yeah. So so we've Some, stayed up really so, late. So sometimes, sometimes we'd be laying really. in bed, just and and you know, yeah. eventually after two hours of rolling around, you'll, you know, say something. Yeah. But, uh, and I don't sleep. I don't. That I don't well now, but do that I anymore go though. Go to bed with him. And uh, I don't get up, and if I have to get up, I wait until he's sleeping and sure. everything. But we always go to bed yeah. at the same time. But it, it, yes. And that's we pray together at that uh, at that time, okay. and uh, just yeah. lay quietly. Yeah. yeah. There's definitely Sometimes. A, definitely a connection. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, there is another question here. Uh, let me see. Did you both get saved at the same time, or was there a time when one of you was saved and the other wasn't? That's an excellent question. Yeah, so there, there was a... And how did you navigate that? Probably a six-month overlap. Okay, so or Lori gap. was saved first? Yeah. Okay, and how did you navigate that? Now you're married to an unsaved man. You know the Lord. He doesn't. She, I know she prayed for me a lot, but it's not like I, I wasn't on my way, though, because the okay. people we were with... We'd be driving places for an hour, hour and a half or whatever. And, and so we were always talking about 
always hearing what, the gospel what, message. What does it mean? I, I'm, I was just, you know, okay, so I'm you a numbers were guy, interested. right? I'm trying to do the logical thing, and, and I, yeah. I need to understand the, the logic and I, I think it. he had a better understanding of uh, that that ceremony of confirmation in um, in a the type of church he was in more so than I did. It was because I, I thought I was word. saved. I... Yes, and so I, I don't think um, I think one of the reasons why we didn't end up quite the train wreck that we probably should have was because he was more grounded definitely mm -hmm. had not walked with the lord but i, I believe he was mm -hmm. far more grounded in an understanding and a biblical okay. concept than i was definitely okay. so what was the question no, no that that is it i would i was just going to follow so, up with uh, that so i did i i learned about fasting very very quickly mm -hmm. and and praying and silence uh, that was a concept that hit me hard and so i prayed for him and i prayed for our boys too yeah, I, I was going to ask, Jim, which would you prefer, the non-Christian Lori or the Christian Lori? The Christian Lori, <laughs> for sure. Even when you were not saved yet, would you have said that too? Yeah. At that time? Yeah. Well, it, it's a unique situation, so it's worth asking while you're up mm. here. So. Okay, so let's pivot just a little bit. We've um, talked a little bit about this in our pre-marriage classes when we've done them together, about boundaries in marriages. Um, what boundaries have you put in place to guard the intimacy within your relationship? So neither of us will, you know, go out for coffee or whatever with a single member of the opposite sex, that type of thing. Or even spouses or, of our friends. Yeah, like, the just, only woman he travels alone with is his mother and his sister. Otherwise, <laughs> we, we, don't, we don't give rides. We don't, we don't do anything like that. That's, I don't know. I think we pray for each other and we do devotions yeah. and, and prayer together. That's that together, time we yeah. guard uh, a lot. And we've, you know, we, we do pick date nights purposely. I mean, even though I'm semi-retired, we, we still pick date nights, whether it's going to Home Depot together or going for a car ride or whatever. I actually talk more in the car now. You know, I, I could drive eight hours and not say a word driver crazy one of the things we're very adamant about is not talking uh, poorly about our spouses to anyone uh, we we tease a little bit but we that is between us each other and yeah. the Lord hmm. and I, I think that's a very detrimental thing is to speak poorly uh, to others about yeah. your, and, your spouse and, you know I, I don't think we stop trying to improve our relationship you know I it took a while to read that book. I'm not an, exactly an avid reader, but we, we've done seminars, we've done uh, Bible studies, and gone through. In fact, tortured the, the, each other the, through all the homework. The yeah. first, the first marriage thing we went to at the church, uh, it was like, hey, they're doing a marriage uh, in, conference. Do you want to go? And she's like, no, I don't want to go. And I said, well, you know, we should go. So we end up going. And ooh, <laughs> we, we came back, and I, there, there's a lot of stuff she had uh, me, that I had to go work on. <laughs> of course. I was kind of like, man, I, I thought we were, okay. All yeah, right. it's, usually, it's usually the men in the room that are the more clueless ones when it comes to. So 
intimacy, you know, intimate after issues. That, it, it's been, you know, yeah. if, if there's a marriage thing and yeah. that's around, we'll, we'll go to it just because yeah, you can pick good. up a couple points, right? Yeah. And we work in ministry together. Yeah. That was something uh, we had separate ministries in our previous church and when the opportunity to do the um, train to facilitate mm. marriage mentors and also work yeah. with in crisis, we, that just fell right into, not that yes. we didn't stumble around to uh, start with, yeah. but. But it is a, it's a great example. I know just from watching the two of you work with the pre-marriage classes, um, just the way you interact with each other is an example to the class, right? They, they see that. Even when you're acting out your uh, your little <laughs> argument skit, which is fun. Last time they did it, they didn't warn me they were doing it, and it took me a minute. I'm like, Wait a sec! Oh, yeah. I'm on to you. I know what you're up to. We had a uh, yeah, we'll an all-out uh, argument right in front of yes. the uh, 14 couples. Yeah, that was good. Now there are some questions. I think uh, I think we're going to move away from our, our pre-range questions. There there are some questions that came in that are obviously a very heavy burden. Um, how would you, and I, I'd like to actually open this up to all of us, but how would you foster intimacy when a couple has no desire or one has no desire possibly, um, no sex drive, or um, a couple that is, you know, trying to get through a, a hurdle in this area, um, you know, struggling right now with intimate issues. I, I think this is one of the areas we are so vulnerable we are sexual beings, we just don't want to admit it. And we're so vulnerable that we don't want to talk about it with our spouse. And this is a, this is a deep, deep wound. That's why I want to kind of open it up to all of us. But what kind of advice would we give? What, what kind of hope would we give to a couple in that situation? I'd have to ask if they actually know what their spouse needs. Right? Like, is, okay. is, is that just partially because the, the, the one spouse feels like they're, they're not getting something they need out of the relationship? Okay. Um, so. And you're, you're referring to, to yeah. the... Yeah. Right. Because this whole concept of this book does not have anything to do with sex. Mm -hmm. because uh, the idea of having your love tank filled is an emotional need. It's not sexual. Yeah. But they're not mutually exclusive because when you're not being met that way, it's very difficult in the mm -hmm. bedroom. And, and that, we had issues when I had, uh, when I had lupus, and he, and he felt very... Um, uh, not loved. Right. Yes. And, yeah. and I didn't have the wherewithal to even express what the, what the problem was. So it is mm -hmm. very problematic. I would say find a couple to come alongside with that can uh, be helpful. Mm. Yes. Uh, and it, but usually when that happens, though, communication's already destroyed, right? And, yeah. and you almost have to teach people how to communicate all over again. Yeah. Um, I've, you know, we've, we, we've looked, looked at maybe 200 surveys of couples, and like the number one thing is communication. People forget how to communicate, yes. how to talk to each other yeah. civilly. Um, number two is usually financial, but if people aren't talking, they don't even know that yes. what they need. This can be a, a, and especially in this area, if we're mm -hmm. not communicating in other issues, we're definitely not communicating in this one. No, and, and you will always 
feel the outside problems in your marriage in your bedroom. Mm-hmm. We, we aren't able to, and that's what intimacy is, is about. Yeah, and sure. so if and, it and is so valuable to have well, a couple, and that's where the hope can come from, to, to uh, be able to, in a safe place, learn to communicate well. There's all kinds of tools, all kinds of things. There's study we can do mm-hmm. to learn how to bring up these issues. You can even, if, if it is helpful, to sit with that other couple but have the conversation with each other and yes. being coached along to, to be able to put and, the issues on the table. And the church actually is a good tool, right? I, I mean, we use it for the premarital couples, but a, a couple who's in crisis could also benefit from that survey just to find out what's actually sure, the going on in the relationship, yep. and where, where the dissension is happening and, and sure. what's actually causing the the, uh, yeah, so we've been crisis. through some dry spells in our relationship at times, and I'm going to put you on the spot, hon, but uh, what would you say was a turning point for us that, that maybe got us on the road to recovery and reconnecting with each other? Well, I think one of the first things was going back to communicating. I definitely did not understand Andrew's felt need for that one physical touch and that physical intimacy. Um, I was very selfish. I struggle with that. So it was more my needs. So when our, well, I was working 12-hour shifts for years, so I was tired, physically tired. There's stress there. We had children. We had issues with conceiving. Like, just so many things that you go through seasons that Naturally for me, my tendency would be to pull away, to try to um, not have to maybe feel, to be that intimate with you mm-hmm. because, you know, there's potential to be hurt there. Yeah. Um, but I know for me, um, being able to speak with a trusted mentor, an older woman who um, I could just confide in, sometimes knowing that you're not alone in that, um, is a huge relief, a huge help, and then being able to communicate together. Yeah. Um, both of our needs, my need to feel that connectedness mm-hmm. outside of the bedroom so that that physical intimacy is not um, a strain or felt a duty or felt like I was being used. Um, yeah, and, uh, and you, you, you say you were being selfish, and at the same time, God was convicting me of selfishness. And... I started to realize, because what would happen is if I wasn't, if, if Ange wasn't meeting my supposed expectations, I would, well, in, in one sense, start pouting or just go off and just disconnect, like, hey, if you're not going to love me, I'm not going to love you kind of thing, which is the absolute wrong thing to do. It's not the gospel, and God started to convict me of my selfishness at the same time and humble me and realize I need to pursue my wife no matter what. God never said I'm going to be rewarded for this. That's not what it's about. Christ-centered love is other-centered love. It's for her benefit. Am I ministering to her? If I am, then I'm not so focused on what she can give me. I'm focused on what I can give to her, which I think did change a lot on the way. But ultimately, tonight, this is why the church needs to talk about these things. So that tonight on the ride home, you can actually have 
a discussion with your spouse and say, we have a problem. We just haven't been able to talk about it. And hopefully just the fact that other people have opened up the door to talk about it, that you can actually approach the subject and have a meaningful and God-glorifying conversation. And ultimately, if, if you need help, if, who, there could be many reasons why there's no sex drive. Many reasons. It could be physical, it could be emotional, it could be spiritual. It could be past trauma that hasn't been dealt with. All of those things. That's why we need to confront the brokenness. We need to confront it and walk in the light. That's where we find freedom. Jesus said, you'll know the truth. The truth will set you free. That's where it's at. And, uh, and, and we can't hide that. We can't act uh, in our marriage and pretend it's okay. It's not okay. So part of the purpose of this is to rip the Band-Aid off mm. and open the wound so that we can actually acknowledge there's a wound here and we need healing. So hopefully that's helpful. I, th I, I yeah. think I'm, I'm somewhat like Ange. My, um, I guess you would call it, love language is quality time. So where do you get quality time with a man who works all that time and mm. then has gone running, cycling, and that, so that had to be a very hard conversation sure. uh, between us. But I had, to, I had a choice to make. I could continue just to be woe is me mm -hmm. and, and that type of thing, or I had to start focusing on him and express yeah. my dissatisfaction with that, my um, concern that it was going to lead us down a very mm. bad road. And it, Jim is an interesting one where love languages are concerned because he has three of them that are equal. So um, I'm Jim, happy. My, my job is <laughs> my, my job after well, <laughs> while the kids were home, but also Jim is my job. I, I would say after the kids were gone, my, to my uh, girlfriend, I think I'll get a job now. And she'd say, oh my goodness, you already have a job. His name is Jim. He says, how are you going to go to work? So, but, so by, by that, so he, he didn't see this, this concept because he really never had that whole um, element of his life drain out of him. And it's, it's very, uh, it's very yeah. important that we understand that. Yeah. Can I just say, yeah. um, there, was, there have been different times where Andrew has had to travel a lot for work. So I could really identify with what you're saying about coming home and uh, we could identify with that. Yes. Yeah, for sure. Uh, I know exactly what I you're talking about. I do not know how. I feel Jim's that. pain. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> um, but one of the ways we found, and thankfully you haven't had to travel for yeah. a long time, um, is to maintain that communication throughout the day. So we have wonderful devices with cell phones. There's mm -hmm. texting. You can have those phone conversations. Um, I know Andrew would always, and this this would fill me knowing that he would take time away from um, whether it was school, like if he's you know traveling and he's still doing school, um, to take 20, 30 minutes, call me at night, um, and we just debriefed over the day, and quite often I would spill my guts about how I felt like I was a terrible mother, but just being able to share that with the love of my life, um, made it easier when he did come home to be able to connect that way. Yeah, that's right. I yeah. think it took us a very long time to, uh, to get that, yeah. but we did. Um, and, yeah. and that's one of the things I'm grateful for technology for, mm -hmm. that, that changed from the early years.
So one more question, I think this follows up on something I just said, but how did you practically go from thinking selfishly to loving your wife in an others-oriented way? Um, oh man, I listened, I, I listened to a lot of focus on the family, which is not a bad idea. They have a lot of good content. And I, I run, I don't run as much as Jim, but I do run um, pretty regularly, and I would listen to things while I was running, and it was at a particularly very low and painful point in life when I heard Dr. Larry Crabb on Focus on the Family talking about the root problem in most marriages being selfishness. And it was at a point where that really hurt. <laughs> And yet it was exactly what I needed at the same time. And that started a process of conviction for me. And a process of transfer transformation. I mean, sanctif being sanctified by the power of God is a painful process, but it's a very rewarding one at the same time. And it doesn't happen overnight, but it is that, like you, you both talked about the stubbornness of just choosing to love. And it kind of came down to that. Listen, if... Jesus Christ is my Lord. This is what he's called me to do. And there are still days, I think for both of us, if we're honest, there are days where we engage with each other, we engage with our family, not because we want to, but because Jesus commands us to. And that's all we have. He's Lord of my life, and he calls me to this. We, and I'm going to do that. We yeah. had uh, one couple we were mentoring, and... Uh, you know, we asked him, so who's most important? He had said, uh, God. We're like, okay, good. He's like, okay, who's next? He goes, I am. And we looked at him and we went, who's next? <laughs> He's like, my wife, my fiance? Yeah. yeah. Okay, so then we said, okay, so now you get kids. Okay, so what's the order? It's God, my wife, me, kids. No. <laughs> Okay, what's the order? God, my wife, my kids, me. Mm -hmm. Right, good, okay. We're now, servants, you keep yes. that in mind, we're, yeah. you're going to have a good marriage. Yeah. Well, you should have a good marriage. Yes. Be because you're putting your wife before you. It's so sacrificial, loving, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, very good. But, but if you're both doing that, then it's not like, then, then, then you've got you know, a, a relationship where you, you, you can work together to yeah. get what you both need. Mm -hmm. so. Yeah. And it is a process. And, and I go back to the Lego illustration because that is exactly what we're given by the Lord. And marriage is meant to sanctify us. It's meant to expose that selfishness. It's meant to bring these things to the surface. And it hurts, but it's worth it. And I know, I'm sure after 35 years of marriage, I know after almost 22 years of marriage, um, we would say it's worth it by all means. I can't imagine, you know, going from one partner to the next, to the next, to the next, to the next, and never ever developing a level of intimacy that you can look across the table and know what the other person is thinking. Um, uh, there, there's something so rewarding about that. I think that would be one of the loneliest together existence you could ever yes. have yes. really after after some of the things 
knocked down that they were and time consuming and get back up and try it again mm -hmm. things i don't i think we're grateful yeah. for yes. uh, for that yeah mm -hmm. well very good thank you for joining us tonight